Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses... The reality of that eight-show-a-week eight eight slog is really hard. When I start on a character, I have to draw them, and I'm, I'm not an artist. This is an effect built in myth and mystery. So you'd be sitting in this tiny little bio box with radiators all around you. Which was a funny thing because I don't think that play would have happened in that way if it wasn't at Griffin. You're a bit different to the other girls in this area. Yes, I thought, yes, I am. That was the days when they could smell an actor or a singer and think, oh, I've got six weeks. My sisters really taught me that, that I had to be versatile. This ostrich, pink ostrich feather sticking up out of my hair, out of this wig. My first career, as it were, was preparation for my second career. And her face was beaming. It was just beaming at me. I hadn't lost any of my passion or love for it, so it's been a joy to talk to you. Thank you very much. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers, and welcome to the third and final instalment of Stage's conversation with stage titan Anthony Warlow. Highlights of a celebrated career include Australian tours of Annie, seasons with Opera Australia, and critically acclaimed performances as Tevye in Fiddler on the Roof, Sweeney Todd, The Demon Barber, Frederick Egamon in A Little Night Music, and the main event, sharing the stage with John Farnham and Olivia Newton-John. Anthony made his Broadway debut in 2013, portraying the iconic role of Oliver Daddy Warbucks in the 35th anniversary production of Annie, directed by Broadway legend James Lapine. In 2015, Anthony was invited to return to the US to perform the dual roles of Miguel de Cervantes' Don Quixote in the Shakespeare Theatre Company of Washington production of Man of La Mancha. The same year, he replaced Kelsey Grammer in the Broadway production of Finding Neverland, playing the roles of Charles Froman and Captain Hook. His craft is masterful, his talents extensive, his presence magnetic. Is it any wonder that Anthony Warlow has left an indelible stamp on the industry, both at home and abroad. I have brought you to the seat of sweet music's throne, to this kingdom where all must be we skipped over Les Mis, oh, yes. which of course... Which you can't do because of the cobbles. Hurts too much. 
<laughs> You've had too much coffee. Yeah. I yeah. <laughs> That's sort of the beginning of your musical theatre career, really, because Guys and Dolls, you're stepping back. You've got a foot in opera and yes, musical theatre. And right. then, of course, Lamy's and it all takes off. Yeah. So, um, of course, it was a big juggernaut coming to Australia. Yes. Everyone was auditioning for Lambs yes. Tell us about that audition and how you heard about it. Okay, so um, after, after Guys and Dolls, uh, it was John Robinson who said, you know, you should have a look at these, this role. Because Robert was at the Adelaide Festival Festival, Trust, that, which right. did Guys and that's Dolls. And, right. and that's Lemis, right, and Lemis. Yeah, yeah. And so after Lemis, uh, I had a little bit of a cash cow, so I took myself to London and um, met up with... David Taguri, uh, and he gave me the ins and outs of where the shows were. While I was there, I went to the New London Theatre on the Cat set to audition for Mark Ockram. Uh, they were doing a production of Follies, and I was auditioning for Young Ben. So I thought, well, I'm here, I'll, I'll do this. It was the Daniel Massey, Diana Rigg yes. production. Yes, so I, I went and did that, and it was great being on that set, you know, the Cat set. Uh, and then I got a phone call about a week later saying that um, that was a great audition. Um, Cameron would like you to go back and, and uh, audition for them is in Australia. I thought, okay, so, uh, great. So I went along and uh, I, saw, I saw the, the show at Shaftesbury and <laughs> this probably sounds a little conceited, but I, I looked, I watched it and it was uh, Michael Ball, David Burt, um, uh, Colm, Robinson, and I can't remember the Chevere, but it was that original oh, cast. Yeah, yeah. Um, Roger. Roger. Bowman or? Uh, yeah, uh, something like that. him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful. Alan. Roger Alan, that's right. Wonderful. We're going to um, be great in the old people's home. <laughs> yes. Now I remember the. I uh, sitting there with my uncle Prinker on. It was John, John Frost. <laughs> that's right. Yes. Oh, over the days. So I uh, so, saw, uh, saw this production and I thought. Marius is a lovely role and yes Sky Marius I thought but wow what a show stealer is Angeras mm, mm. and I just thought wow this is, this is great so I went back to Australia and I auditioned for Marius and for Angeras so the, the one audition was for sort of both characters and um, while the you know the, the next move would have been okay if you're going to do Sky lead role the next thing would be the young lover in, in Les Miserables. And I got a phone call from John Robinson who said, we'd like you to play that one, I remember something like that, that terrific role of Andreas. I said, thank you. I said, how wonderful. And that was the beginning of, of working, of course, with Trevor and Deb and Philip Quast and, and everybody and Simon, just beautiful, beautiful people to work with. And, um, and the experience of having Trevor Nunn on board in the room, he uh, two things, and th these are you know just anecdotal things that, that did happen, but then they're, they're part of my the Pride book, I suppose. Uh, we we did the uh, Red and Black the the ABC Cafe the first time we'd actually performed it and done it in the room, and Trevor took me off the table. He grabbed me my by the hand. He said, "Come down here," and he turned in front of the company. He said. You tell me one person who would not follow this man to their death, mm. and I went, okay, that's that's nice. That's good. That that's nice. Up. And his note on opening night, which I still have, he said, "You're a dark horse, and the world is your oyster." That's all he said. I thought, oh, that's very kind. 
really very kind. But I, I enjoyed that role. However, there were some funny moments in it because originally they wanted me to be blonde. And I had a blonde wig. The wig that I wore as Onzeras was originally blonde. And I came out for the first tech, running out going, one more day before the storm. And Trevor says, stop, stop. He said, you look like little Lord Fauntleroy, dip the wig. <laughs> so that, within that, by that night, it was dark, it was black. And I looked fantastic, I've got to say. With the blue eyes and the, the black hair, yeah. I was felt in those days, you know. I thought, this is a bit Tony Courtesy. There's a bit of, bit of that in there, a bit of romantic hero. And uh, it was terrific. And I, I had, a, I had the, the, the stressless show to do. I mean, of course, we had all those characters before we played our main role, uh, which was great to do as an ensemble. Um, and I love the ensemble nature of that company. It was just so wonderful to work with all those people and the friendships and the camaraderie was terrific. Yeah, you should be honest, all sorts of people in the chain gang and um, yeah. farmers and things before That's, you even... Well, I, my roles were, and I, I think I remember them pretty well, was chain gang. Uh, then I would go off and we were, we were the farmers. Um, then Simon and I had to go off and be the two captains. Oh, no, Captain, you can wear your shoes. So we had to walk around and we, we became quite <laughs> quite naughty ca uh, captains. And then Simon, would his track finished, he went off to get ready for Marius and I was the judge, the middle judge, oh, yeah. who condemned um, Valjean. Uh, Valjean. And then after that, I went off and prepared for Onzeras. And Simon and I were both in the wig room at the same time with stories and voices and shenanigans you have no idea and I didn't have an idea until one day Simon presented me with a, a tape a cassette tape that he had been recording so many of these moments in his dressing gown and edited all the <laughs> all these things Fantastic. and called them the wig room follies and they were just character voices and uh, you know doing Robin Arthur and being disrespectful and funny and and just awful and funny and witty and um, he, he had a ball. And so we became great mates. Well, you need to have that silliness in a show like Lame Mears, don't you? Which is so anything, long, and yeah. which is, unless you're one of the Tenardios. Yes. Um, it's uh, yeah. a very emotional show. Yeah. And uh, Barry Langrish and I shared like a dressing room area. And he, he was an incredible man, a funny, funny man. He said he faked his way into the show. <laughs> he said, uh, Cameron, uh, um, Trevor said, um, Camden Players. Camden Players, um, he used to pull his goatee all the time, Camden Players, and Barry, oh yes, yes, Camden Players, there are no Camden Players, <laughs> <laughs> and he said he got it because he was such a con man, <laughs> oh, <right. laughs> yeah. fantastic! and he was just a, a fabulous, he was a serious comedian, oh, he was able to do that, the dark, the grunginess of Tenardier, but he had this very weird sort of attitude, he came in with, I'll never forget, he used to wear um, Cuban heels. He wore jeans and Cuban heels, and oh, he, he was just—he was just a great character. We had a great time. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've worked with some extraordinary people. We talk about those directors, etc. But also performers. You know, Olivia Newton-John and John Farnham. Yes, yeah. In the main event. Yeah, pretty wonderful. Um, Scary. Three, three giants of the, uh, you know, three national treasures. Do I say? <laughs> <laughs> and now we put on the old voice. Out, <laughs> yes, and that, that's right. Um, and a mix of, of genres too that you, that you all yeah. had performed in as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, that that, that was interesting because um, when it was all, it, it that came about after John 
I was invited to sing uh, with John and uh, Kylie Minogue and Ray Charles at the opening of the Melbourne Casino, at the Crown Casino. And we were singing uh, with Ray, we sang, uh, Red Sails in the Sunset was uh, one of the numbers we sang. And there was something in that night and I just felt, I, I, I know what it was, Les, Leslie Fields who was one of John's backup singers. In rehearsal, I was, you know, sort of rocking it a bit because there was this song that was a bit rocking and John was singing and Kylie was singing. I thought, right. And Leslie said, you know, sing, just sing like you. Sing. I said, well, if I sing like me, I'm going to sound like Bing Crosby with these guys next to me. And I, so he kind of, he pulled the rug out from under me a bit and there was a lot of corporate people there because you can imagine Elton John was there. We ended up going up to his suite to have a party afterwards. And so I, I, on the, the night, I came out and I thought, I, I'm just going to have to do it. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it. And I, I remember saying, look out, Farnham. And I wailed this note. And the place went wild. And so my manager at the time came to me and he said, that was, that was fantastic. You and John, isn't that? That was great. So I said, what do you want to do? Do you want to do what? Do, what do you want to do? Is that with managers? I, I've only had that one manager. I have two managers actually. I'm I'm G and SEL, and I now I'm, I look after myself. But at that time, what I found was that they were kind of saying, "What do you want to do?" Rather than saying, "Here are seven projects. Which of these would you like us to work on?" And it was, "What do you want to do?" And I thought, "Okay." Um, uh, I said, "I'd like I'd I'd like to somehow sing with John." Even if it's like a one-night thing, it'd be great to, you know, just sort of riff a bit, you know, jam. And so that kind of put it to bed for a while. And then um, John Frost had, had joined the SEL crowd at the time. Uh, and they they said, well, if we do this concert, uh, a, a little bit like the ultimate event, which was Sammy and Frank and Liza. And uh, they said, you know... It, would that be something you'd be interested in? I said, well, yeah, it'd be great. I said, but, you know, so John's the, the, the rock. And I said, I'm music theatre. And, and I said, well, what are we going to do? And they wanted to get someone from the music theatre world. And I said, no. I said, because you need yeah, another genre. And I said, what about, you know, country and western or something like that? And John said, what about Olivia? And I, t I remember in the boardroom and I said, if you can get Olivia, I'm in. Let's do this. So she was on again. She was off again. And because of her daughter and, and um, you know, schooling and all sort of business, turns out that she was available. So we put this together. So SEL created this main event, which was meant to do, I think, 16 shows, ended up doing 36 mm -hmm. performances around the country, around again, and up in um, Mount Isa with Bogan moths <laughs> and bringing a helicopter to get rid of the dust before the night started. And it was crazy, but it became a the phenomenon that, that was and I think it became that because we were all similar spirits uh, we we respected each other incredibly and I went in with all due respect I went in going I'll, I'll be the little funny guy I'll be the Sammy Davis I'll be the one who got the gags and uh, and that was kind of like a safety net too yeah. uh, but as we did it and uh, Peter Casey of course was our MD as well as Chong Lim, who was on John's side, uh, the, the the two elements of, of rock and pop and opera and you know, uh, so the Granada moment, for instance, I said if I'm going to sing, you know, that's life or or um, uh, help me help me again, I'm feeling down with John. 
I said, John has to do something from my my genre as well. So we worked on the Granada, and um, and you know the audience just loved him because he Granada did the whole thing in his way, and I sang my bit, and then Olivia came in, and we just had this wonderful, wonderful time. Crazy time, really, but it was it was really wonderful. Is it difficult to get the sound right in those those outdoor venues? Uh, well, the 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 sound most of the venues were in, were inside so we were in right, okay. and, and so, big, yeah. the entertainment center and right. all those places it, it it was a little more for those I think it was only two nights or something we did in mount isa yeah. um which was just like a one off yeah uh but the monitors were so good and the the hendo who's john's sound guy was fantastic but the funny thing that happened there was that we had in ears and I'd, I'd not really worked with in-ears before. And I've, the strange phenomenon is that unless, until they turn your mic on, you can't breathe. Mm-hmm. So this is a, you're in a fishbowl. And so I would say, I'm not going to put this on until the mic's on so I can hear myself. Um, and that, that's your, own, your whole show is just here. And we had monitors and our packs to turn up the volumes. And so as the shows progressed, I found myself just turning that knob a little bit because it was getting a bit louder and John's, you know, wailing around and Olivia's doing her thing and the, the, and the strings are over here wailing away and the band, the rock band, Sean's doing his thing. And then one night, I, I thought, I think this thing's broken. I can't turn the knob. And we looked at ACDC, the volume going to 11. I couldn't get it any higher and I couldn't hear properly. So... We did it. I mentioned it. I said, "Look, you know, this is, something's going wrong." Or he said, they said, "Oh, it's just you know, it's getting hot. The show's getting hot. It's great." The following morning, I, w- I woke up to what I thought was my alarm, with this piercing whistle in my ear, uh, and it was the beginning of tinnitus. Oh. So I ended up. I said, I, "I'm. I need to see a doctor." So I went to the ear, nose, and throat uh, hospital in um, Melbourne, and he looked down and he said, "Yes." He said, "The cilia's." with the little fine fibres, the hairs in your ear. He said, they've, that what, he said what happens is they bend with, with vibration and frequency and if it's too high, they will break. And, the, and, and if they break, they don't grow back. Mm. So you, you lose. And so if there's any like physical tension or high, high pitch or low, low pitch, he said it can, it can set it off. So you start to get this sound. Um, happens rarely, but I, I still have a bit of it now and then, uh, mainly when I'm stressed. But that was the result of, of having to turn that stuff up, and that's that's rock and roll, yeah, baby. <laughs> <laughs> a role which which takes you, uh, well, there's been several character roles, but I'm thinking of Daddy Warbucks, yeah, yeah, where it's a paternal role. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a daughter of your own by yep. then, yep, yeah, which which certainly influences it, yeah, and that was beautiful to play. Um, it had been done in Australia, of course, with the great Hayes Gordon, Hayes Gordon, of course, yeah, yeah. and. Um, um, and Jill Perriman, yeah. of course, and Nancy, Hayes. Miss Hannigan, and, and Nancy, yeah. yeah. And uh, who was the the rooster? Kevin uh, Johnson, Kevin's husband. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So when this came about, uh, we were in the hands of the lovely Martin Shannon, who wrote the the book for it and lyrics, and directed all those productions. And he came to Australia, and he he came to, to the rehearsals and. Um, and I was like a young daddy at that time, uh, 2012. And uh, he, I, I remember in rehearsal, we were rehearsing in uh, the Betty Pounder Studios. 
and uh, he stopped rehearsal at, at this time and he said, we've never had a Warbucks who can really sing. He said, so um, Charles Strauss and I written this song for Anthony. And what he'd done, he said, he got my recordings and my roles together and he'd done like a pastiche of all the different styles from GNS to, to you know, um, Sprech singing with like uh, Higgins and wrote this song called Why Should I Change a Thing? And it, and it was about, it, 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 it added about three minutes onto the show in the study and Warbucks comes in, he's nervous about having this, adopting this child. Why should he change the things and learn about cornflakes and learn about doing these things and taking it to preschool or schooling and all sorts of business. And uh, so we, we put it in that, that production. Um, and apparently when I did the show again with Martin, he mentioned, he said, you know that song we wrote for you? He said, it, before the ink was dry, they put it into a production in London. <laughs> in London that they'd heard about it and they wanted it in the show. The next time we did it, I decided not to put this, the song in the show. I said, look, it's just it's just a showpiece for me. It, it doesn't really serve the show and I was flattered that it's there. I have the original um, manuscript on my wall, which is lovely to have, but it was something that I thought, you know, it, it's, it's not really necessary. Uh, and then the, the next time I was with Martin, of course, was... Um, doing it on Broadway. That's right. And, a, and the first time he didn't direct it. Right. Is it a role that took you to New York? Yeah. yeah. Um, how did that come about? Was that his suggestion? His suggestion, apparently. I discovered this down the track. I was doing, I was in Brisbane with Annie and I got a phone call and they said, oh, um, you know, uh, Mr. Lapine will, will be on the phone in a minute. I said, okay, Lapine. I said, it was James Lapine. He said, oh, hi, hi. I said, hello, James. And he said, uh, so, um, you know, would you, we wanted you to come over and, and play Daddy Warbucks for the uh, 35th anniversary. I said, oh, that's how, how lovely. Um, and uh, he said, you know, I know you can sing. I've seen your work. I've seen on you know, television, YouTube and stuff. He said, I know you can sing. So I said, oh, great. He said, I just wanted to, you know, welcome you. On it. I said, oh, thank you, thank you. So I ring John and say, look, I just had this call saying, would I come to Broadway? And he said, oh, oh you've got to do that. You've got to do that. I said, well, I've still got three weeks of the show to do. He said, just, we'll, we'll fix it, don't worry. So they put the understudy on and, and I get on a plane and I'm over there and, and take my life with me for whatever the time's going to be. Um, and I, I discovered uh, Martin, who had, for the first time in the history of the show, had given it over to another director, uh, said that if I didn't do it, that he wouldn't allow the show to be done. I found that out three months after when I was doing a, a workshop for Martin um, at the time for another musical. And um, I, I thought, wow, well, there's, there's influence for yeah, you. Yeah. So, and in a way, it was a bit scary because I thought, well, I'm going to have to prove myself now, you know. And the biggest thing for me, I knew I could, I've done the role, thank God I had done it. The biggest thing for me was um, being convincing as an American. I knew I had chops to do voices and things but I I wanted to get this right yeah. and um, and the loveliest thing was that I was in Joe Allen's one night um, and people had come in after the show and they said we just saw you and said, what part of New York do you come from nice it was lovely yeah. lovely uh, so that that was a, a bit of a boon had you always harbored a desire to um, make your mark 
in the West End or, or West Broadway? End was the place I thought yeah. that, that I would go to um, and only because that was seemed to be the place that Australians were you know that entered into that world more more easily more readily there's no talk of taking phantom there uh, I, I've, I've been asked about doing phantom but I've done it yeah. now in fact I was asked when I was over there I said why you know, why don't you come to New York and do phantom I said, Cause I've done it and and I will say this that the phantoms not that I've seen a lot of productions uh, but the phantoms that I know have played those roles this is another um, element of mine about voice and choice a lot of those phantoms are, are tenors and that makes it easy eight, eight times a week mm-hmm. but what you lose in the tenorial voice is the gravitas of the baritone and the tension that's, requ- that's required I, I believe to, to create for an, an, an oral experience for an audience to, to feel someone stretching uh, and when they do stretch and they get the notes, it's thrilling. But if you know that someone's, you know, night time sharp and they, they're going to go up to the A flat and they're going to get it. But if someone's down there and it's night time and you think, are they going to get it? Yeah. And they do, and you go, whoa, wow. that's interesting. Another thing about sound on stage, which I discovered during Lemmy's, the, the sound plot that is created by the show, and this is the plot that the show is, we had a. Um, I'd be doing my lingerie, powering out, you know, doing the big thing, big voice. And friends who'd seen the show, they said, "Why are you so soft? What are you talking about?" They said, "When you're up there pumping up and you've got the flag and you're," they said, "Everyone else is like really loud around you." And I thought, "Strange." And then one guy, I can't remember his name. God bless him. He was a lovely understudy for Marius. Had the tiniest voice in the world. And I could hear it. I could hear it when we were on stage. And they said, he's much louder than you. Because it was the plot. Marius, you know, Ange, uh, uh, Javert, yeah. and Valjean. And then you go down, you get then Marius, and then Angeras, and the Cosette's up here. So I thought, that, that's the whole design. It's yeah. all design. Yeah. So you really are, you know, you're a puppet, basically. Um, and you, you've got to create your own signature which is what i discovered after that so i'm very aware of sound designs and shows as well and i'll go out i'll find if i can i'll go out and listen when i can um to, to, to kind of i'm not i'm not the one to say turn that down or turn it up but there's a really interesting thing that happens when overtures and things are really loud audiences sit back and they relax when they're not when it's more acoustic but it's um supported you feel an audience coming in with you you're part of it and that's something that i think is is really interesting and and something that i think should be looked at on a constancy basis uh, with productions that i've seen and i and i don't i haven't seen a lot of shows really i've been in most of them. <laughs> but, but it, that's the other that's the other thing that world of of you know, people used to come to the shows and say, oh, yes, I went and saw Winter Broadway and I saw this and I, I saw Lemmy's five times and I know what this is and I know how that works. I saw it once and I, it was up to Trevor to, to guide us in the show. So um, it's not something that I'm... I'm not one of those people that go, oh, i got to see a show, I want to see a show. Uh, I'll, it, when I go to um, Broadway, I love to see American musicals and I love to see American plays. When I go to London, I love to see the plays 
and a, a British musical. Um, and in, in the world that I have experienced, you know, the, the Americans do a re- they invented it. They invented it, you yeah. know. It's American art form. Yeah. But there are some great, you know, some of the great uh, British musicals which are American based, they do really well. But the plays are the thing, you know. Yeah. Incredible. Do you have a desire to do a play? Yeah, I do. I'd yeah. love to do a play. I'd love to not have to worry about vocalising. Um, but in that, in that way, I'm very aware of what your audience, my audience, inverted commas, would kind of want to expect. Um, so you've got to you've got to give them something. So you know, someone said, "Well, if you do it, it'd probably be a light comedy, or you know, where you might sing something in it as a as a character." But um, but I'd I'd prefer to just get rid of all that and do something which is very different, um, character based, mm. period based. Mm. Um, I I I don't I won't say that I feel totally uncomfortable in contemporary work, but I think my my histrionics and my sensibility is something that is from the past, uh, and that's something I'd love to play with. Second role on um, on Broadway, Finding Neverland. Yeah. Um, beautiful show, I, I saw yeah. it, but unfortunately you weren't in it. But um, an experience that you'd probably never had before was replacement cast. You, yeah. you took over from Kelsey Grammer. That's right, and lovely man, lovely man. What's it like going into a company that's already established? Absolutely you know? frightening. <laughs> I had 10 days to get into it, to be flown. They sent me um, a B-roll of the show, uh, an archive I should say, and uh, I, I, you know, on my computer I saw it. Um, they sent me the script and th- and I learned it as best I could because I like the old opera days. I thought oh, I'm going to have you know a week to get into this thing, and um, went went over, worked with a wonderful stage manager and a wonderful assistant choreographer who got me through, and uh, a really beautiful company, who I didn't realise that when you are a put in on Broadway, most of the company don't turn up. But when I did my put-in, the whole company turned up. Right. Matthew was there, um, um, uh, Michelle Kelly, who played the girl. Uh, they all turned up. They all did it. And a part, it was partly to do with the hook scene, which was the ship, when it turns into the ship, uh, because there were great big holes on the stage and it's full of dry ice, so you've got to be careful. And they were there sort of to guide me. But Matthew came in and, and did, the, did the, the performance with me. Um, and then Barry Weisler came up to me and said, well, look, um, what, what do you want to do? Do you want another couple of days just to, you know, just to debrief? And I said, Barry, let's just go on tomorrow night. I said, it's like pulling the Band-Aid. Am I just going to be as frightened tomorrow as I am next week? Let's just do it. And, and then I'll get my notes and, and guide myself through. And you're replacing, you know, someone who is loved and known uh, and it's Frasier. So, um, and he, he had his own element in the show. And it's, it, it is interesting because it took me back to the opera days when I was understudying and, and replacing people in, in, in operas where they would say, X did this, X did that. Can you do this? Can you do that? And I said, well, okay, well, then you become a, a carbon copy of them. Um, and there was a little bit of that. There were a couple of gags that Leslie had, uh, that um, Kelsey had created. Uh, I didn't see him do it. I saw uh, Paul Smith, who was his understudy, who ended up doing Charlie, uh, Chocolate Factory out here, lovely man. Um, And 
that that's the show I saw. So I had no idea of what Kelsey's performance was. Um, so there was one, just one little moment, and Cap, who was our stage manager, she kept giving me this note, and I said, "I'm not landing it. No, I'm not landing it." And uh, and I said, Look, "Can I just, can you just give me one one night just to do? I I think I I've got the span of this thing. I could just let me do my own thing." And I did this. It was just about a, walking past with about a baby and the look of the baby coming past. Um, Kelsey had a look which got a laugh. I just put my hat over my face and I got a laugh and it was a totally different version yeah. but it worked and she said that's fine keep it in it's done it was in yeah um, something that you probably had never done in your career was create an original role that's right and, and you did that with Dr Zhivago yeah yeah with with the team around yeah. me yeah. and and Lucy of course who um, Lucy Simon who wrote a beautiful show uh, and um Michael Wheeler, who, who put the book together, was a playwright, you know, and, and so we had we had incredible words. And I spent I spent months, you know, reading the book and, and looking at all the versions of it and trying to distill all that that poetry into this this um, this character. And the big thing about that show for me was, um, I mean, apart from learning so much from Des McNuff, uh, McNuff who. Um, was the creator of Jersey Boys, of course, and then put this together. Um, was just being able to to discover and play, um, and and distill. I found there was a, a great element of distillation of finding, you know, twenty seven pages of prose, and making it matter and work in a show. And the big element was which I had many conversations with Lucy about. She, I was reading the Kreutzner Sonata, which is the Tolstoy. Um, she said, these are things that we, we were reading and, and to, to find elements of, of the character. And the whole Russian ethic that, that it was okay to have a, a, a mistress, mm. which is what we had to sort of, not tread around lightly, but, but it was fact, it was a part, to acknowledge it, it, it was, we had yeah, to acknowledge yeah, yeah. it, that it was okay. And that was, his, that was the dilemma of doing it with, in front of an Australian audience. I thought, this man's having an affair. Yeah. But spiritually, it was okay. Yeah. And, so we, and so we had to sort of cover that with poetry in, in that regard. Um, a tough show, you know, and, and uh, Des gave some incredible notes. He, he worked... He worked very much on transitions first, and I, I was getting nervous because we were at the ABC studios in Sydney were rehearsing, and these transitions were going on and on and on, and I thought, we, we haven't done a lot of book work. It's a, it's a big book, yeah. you know? And he, he said, once the transitions are set, he said, everything else will fall into place. He was also mad about sound effects, so that the, when the, you know, the uh, bomb, the, not the bombs, the planes were going across, it was as if they were there in, in the theatre. The yeah. Um, and uh, I, <laughs> the moment that was the worst thing that could have happened because it was a very steeply raked stage. It had to be because of the pit in the middle. We were doing the mazurka and uh, I, was, I had to run. He said to me, you, he said, don't worry about playing young as the young Yuri. He said, because like you, he said, Yuri is an old spirit. 
and that helped a lot. Wow. So I, so the young was just the weak and the moustache. That really frees you up. It did. Yeah. It really did. Yeah. So that this is the essence of him is is old, and that's what he that's why he falls in love with. And of course, the the metaphor is that that he is the Christ image that saves Russia, which is the Mary Magdalene. And and Pasternak writes a poem called Mary Magdalene about the the prostitute and being salved by the um, the essence of of someone like Yuri. Uh, so it was it was full of metaphors and and very big and very spiritual and um, but at the same time a tough thing. And that night that when in rehearsal, God, when I I tore my hams my um, calf muscle and I was sort of off I was on crutches for six weeks, came back to do the show with a leg strapped up um, for weeks and weeks and weeks. We had to change certain things. But them's are the breaks, as it were, and uh, we got through it. The wonderful thing about working in the theatre is that every, which you've demonstrated today, every show that you work on requires so much research and investigation of other yeah. cultures and other worlds yeah. and, um, yeah. and, you know, the knowledge that you shared today. Yeah. Uh, well, my dad used beautiful. to say, you know, knowledge is power. Yeah. And it's so true. And uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not the greatest, you know, at, when we do uh, dramaturge stuff. It's, I get a little bit bamboozled by some, some of those things, but I think I do my own mm. uh, by, by coming to work with enough essence um, to play with. Um, with, for instance, with, with Billy Flynn, as we go right back to that, you know, I thought, well, I, I think he was a local. I think he's Chicago. Um, so there is that, that kind of um, streetwise when he was young, a young lawyer. Um, he, yeah, he's a bit of a con man, but he's also, there is a charm, but uh, not to be taken lightly in any way. Mm. Do you get nervous? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I do. I, I started, um, I used to say, you know, I have disciplinary nerves. <laughs> uh, there's a certain, you, 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 know, you know you're going to be okay. When I'm ill, and we all get ill, we're only human, um, my anxiety levels go through the roof because of what's expected. And, and usually because the, the roles that I've played are major, major roles and people have an expectation, they've paid a lot of money and they don't want to be disappointed. And I don't want to disappoint them. You know, I hate, I hate mucking up in, in uh, rehearsal. We all do, we have to, it's important. That's how we learn, um, but um, but it's still, it's not easy to, to let people down. I don't like letting people down. There's a lot of opening nights there in your career. <laughs> Do you have a, a, a ritual that you go through? Well, are you superstitious in the theatre um, anyway? Uh, I suppose in a way superstitious is... It, You're whistling in the dressing room. Well, that, that I don't. I don't do and if someone does they go out they spin around three times they come in they swear and that's fine that that I discovered through the opera I didn't realize it was a, a thing um, uh, the, the the beauty of the ghost light in New York is something that I I knew of it we don't really use it in Australia mm. but it's it's a major major thing in every theater over there mm. and there's something beautiful about walking out when everyone's gone and you just go you walk across the stage and that light is just glowing. And you go to the stage door and you go out and go home. That was um, a beautiful thing during COVID where lots of people would post ghost lights on their social media. That's right, I remember seeing that. Yeah, 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 you're right. Life, yeah, that yeah. there is still life there. And it's for those elements, those ethers that are filled. Um, 
but superstitions, I, not really. Um, I have a mantra, you know, I say, I do things before I, I go on, just to sort of, and it's kind of a meditation, which is important to me. Um, yeah, that's, that's really, and I do my own warm up. I'm not a great one for going on stage with a whole cast and singing scales for half an hour. I do my own thing. And sometimes, as I've learned with the different roles, the show warms you up as you, you've got to be warm for the beginning, but the show actually warms you up, otherwise you sing too much. Um, I've, I've been in productions where I've, I've heard the show sung a thousand times in a 500 show production. So people have been singing the show and then they go on and sing it that night. Um, and they do it again the next day in the dressing room, perform it in front of people. So sometimes you just got to let a little bit back and let it come out when it needs to be there. Well, you've got some great numbers in Chicago, both reach for the gun, yeah. razzle dazzle. Yeah. That's it. What else? And and all I, all I care about is all love, I care which about, is which first. is a wonderful entrance. Yeah, it, it is. And I, and interesting enough, I because it's based on um, Ted Lewis, hmm. who was the famous uh, singer in in the twenties, who had the catchphrase "Is everybody happy?" And he was a crooner, and he would like let let lyrics fly away. And I was having this conversation with with uh, Gary Chris, our choreographer, only last week. You know, if it would be by the light of a silvery moon, I want a spoon. My honey, a crew loves you. Um, that that's an element which is a pastiche of of that kind of crooner. But in the rehearsal process and discovering this with Tanya, um, that's not how I sing it. That's all I'll say. In that original production of Chicago, had the byline a, a musical vaudeville. Yes. And that's what which, it is. Yes, which has dropped now from this this new production. That's, I think that's we right. Don't see that's it as right. Much. So that's still talked about the original characters that um, yeah, 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 Mr. Cellophane's yeah. based on. And yes, 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 indeed. And and uh, the Belva and Belva and Beulah were the two women, the original women, uh, who were in jail at the time. And there were two lawyers, uh, William Scott O'Brien and a, forgive me, I don't know the other one, but the two of them are combined into Billy Flynn. One looked after Beulah and one looked after Belva. Um, and uh, that, so those two elements are the combination which becomes Billy Flynn. Uh, but they're all based on, it's real, real stuff. You know, mm. Cook County Jail, the first uh, woman who was hung, is true, that happened. Um, so it's, it's based on, on true story. And of course... Um, Maureen uh, Dallas Watkins. Maureen Dallas Watkins. Uh, was a court reporter and a, and a writer and she ended up writing the play which was done in the 20s and then the movie uh, there was a silent movie done and then in I think it was 1946, 7, 8 I'm not sure with Ginger Rogers called Roxy Hart uh, uh, which is basically the sto- our story uh, and, um, and then the, the musical uh, the original musical which was interesting because it was colourful I think I mentioned this earlier it was colourful but the element of, of the black and white for me really makes things stand out and you listen and you watch. Mm. Um, and it's subtle. It's actually really subtle. The only vaudeville moment really is in the court scene, the end of the night. Do you know the album's Lost in Boston? I've heard all the, of it. All I those numbers it. that are dropped from shows, and there's a great number that was dropped from Chicago sung by a, a theatrical agent called Mr. 10%. Ah, really? That's terrific. Didn't yeah. I know that? That's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Well, um, it's a terrific season. Perth, you open in November. Um, you go to Brisbane in January, Melbourne in March, and you're in Sydney in June. 
Honeymoon. That must be nice. <laughs> <laughs> nice to be back on the boards. Yes, yeah, it's lovely. Anthony Warlow, this has been the most magnificent uh, couple of hours. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Thank you, and, Peter, very and, much. And Chukasville, Chicago. Thank you. Well, I know you've enjoyed this insight into one of our great stars of the musical theatre stage. It was a delight to record and share this conversation via the Stages podcast at long last. Thank you, Anthony Warlow, for your tremendous gift and for sharing it with audiences across many stages across many years. And Chookers for the next spellbinding stage success. Your Billy Flynn is sure to give him the old razzle-dazzle. Murder, greed, corruption, exploitation, adultery, treachery and all that jazz. So begins the international multi-award winning musical Chicago. The longest running musical on Broadway, this scorching hot masterpiece is coming to Perth, Brisbane, Melbourne and Sydney. Starring Anthony Warlow as Billy Flynn. Zoe Ventura as Velma Kelly, Lucy Maunder as Roxy Hart, Peter Rosethorne as Amos Hart, and Asabi Goodman as matron Mama Morton. The original and the best, Chicago is back. It would be a crime to miss it. I'm Peter Ayers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time on Stages. The power.